Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are looking at the wonders of salvation. Last week we began with this longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. It's a 202 word doxology. Paul begins to praise God for the wonders of salvation, and he just gets carried away. He just goes on and on and on in this long doxology. And so we began looking at this last week, and we began with exploring the work of the Father, the work of our Heavenly Father, God the Father, in the wonder of salvation. And we saw last Sunday that he blesses us or with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and that he predestined us to adoption as sons. And so we explored all that last week. Today, as we pick up where we left off, we're going to see the work of the Son in salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And then we're going to see the work of the believer in salvation, all within this 202-word doxology, marveling at the wonder of salvation. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 7. In him, talking about in Christ, there's that prepositional phrase, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Well, let's stop there for right now as we consider the work of the Son in our salvation. If you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back panel. I've given you a very simple outline for a very complex text. <laughs> so it's a very simple outline. But as you heard, boy, we've got some deep snow to plow through. There's some rich stuff in our verses. And so it's going to be kind of technical, kind of tedious at times, but hang with me because this is a rich passage. So let's take a look. The work of the sun. Notice that we have a tense switch. We heard last week the Father uh, blessed us, the Father chose us, the Father predestined us, but now in verse 7, we have. That changed. We went from past tense to present tense. We have. This is the present experience. This is a current experience of the blessings of God in our lives. We have a present possession. We have redemption through his, through his blood, Jesus Christ. So now let's take a look. Notice what the Son does for us, the work of the Son. He redeems us. In him we have redemption through his blood. He redeems us. Redemption means to purchase, to buy back, typically to buy freedom for a slave or to buy the freedom of a prisoner of war by paying a ransom. That's redemption. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We have been redeemed. We have been bought out of slavery in Jesus Christ. Now, Brother Jeff, what kind of slavery have we been bought out of? I didn't know I was a slave. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the Bible shows us that without Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin and death. Last week, we saw that we have a biological parent. His name is Adam. We have all been born into Adam's family, not the Adam's family, but Adam's, the family of Adam. 
We are in Adam. As such, we are conceived in sin. We are born in sin. We are natural born sinners. That's who we are by nature. We are children of wrath. We'll see in just a moment. That is our nature. We are slaves to sin. The Bible says there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, none that seeketh after God. That's because we are in Adam. We're slaves to sin. We are slaves to death. In Adam, all die, and we can't do a thing about it. We are slaves to sin, slaves to death. In fact, Hebrews talks about those who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. We're even enslaved to the fear of death. Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, take a look in chapter 2, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We can say that we are slaves to this world system without Jesus Christ. We are in the world. We are of the world. We're part of the world. We are totally part of this world system apart from God. We are slaves to this world system according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We are, we are slaves of Satan. He is our master without Jesus Christ. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we are slaves without Jesus. We are slaves not only to sin and death, but to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. Paul goes on to say in Titus that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. So without Jesus, we are slaves. But in him, we have redemption. We have been bought out of slavery into freedom. Our freedom has been purchased. The Bible says you are bought with a price. What was the price? We have redemption through his blood. That's the redemption price. That's the price. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. That's the price. That's the payment to redeem. He gave his life as a ransom for many. First Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life that you inherited from your forefathers. There's our slavery. That feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So his blood, that's a metaphor for his death. Jesus Christ bought our freedom by his death. He died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, dying the death we deserve. That's the ransom. That's the price that was paid. You've been bought with a price. His death on Calvary's cross. We have redemption through his blood. Now notice, in him, Paul's favorite prepositional phrase, in him we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, out of Christ, outside of Christ, without Christ, apart from Christ, there is no redemption. There is no salvation. There is no other, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. So here's the work of the Son. He redeems us. Through the cross, he redeems us. Not only does he redeem us, he forgives us. Let's keep going. Verse 7. We have redemption through his blood. Notice the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now that is an appositive. It's an apposition to the phrase that came before. In other words, it's another way of saying the same thing. The other side of the coin. So we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's another way of describing redemption. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is another word for sin. Literally, it means going off to the side, falling to the side. Um, we have all, it's, it's deviating from a standard, going off the rails, so to speak. We have all deviated from the standard of God's law and God's righteousness. There's no, none, none righteous, no, not one. We've all deviated from the standard. We have all sinned, trespassed against God. He has forgiven us. In him we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness. The word forgiveness here means a sending away, to send away or to release. You put these two together, that's a beautiful picture. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We see it in the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, you read about this high holy day that God prescribed for his people Israel under that Old Testament sacrificial system. One day a year, the high holy day, the day of atonement, the priest would take two male goats. They had to be perfect without spot or blemish or defect. Two male goats. And he would cast lots to decide which of these goats would be for the Lord and which one would be a scapegoat. So by casting lots, these two, these two goats are going to be decided. One's going to go one way, the other's, one's going to go the other. The goat that was decided to be for the Lord, it would be slaughtered. Its blood would be sprinkled on the altar and on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel and to consecrate the temple from the sins of the people. So it was, that, lamb was, uh, that goat was slaughtered. Its blood was sprinkled on the altar, sprinkled on the mercy seat, and then the rest of that goat would be burned. Then the, the, the priest would take the other goat, the scapegoat, and it remains alive. He places his hands on the head of that goat, and he confesses the sins of Israel, the people of Israel, as a nation. He confesses the sins of Israel, symbolically identifying that goat with the people's sins, their guilt. Their guilt is, in a sense, confessed and, and, and burdened on this scapegoat, and then that goat is led off alive into the wilderness to never come again, to never return, symbolically carrying away the guilt of the people. So you have one goat that's, die, that, that's slaughtered. It dies. Its blood is shed. It's a reminder, symbolically reminding us the wages of sin is death always. The wages of sin is death. That goat died. And then the other goat symbolically carries away the guilt of God's people. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. You see both of those pictures right here. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Our sins have been atoned for, covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed. He died on the cross for us. The wages of sin is death. He died in our place. And then also we have the forgiveness of sin. In Him we have the forgiveness of sin, the release, the removal. He carries away our guilt as far as the east is from the west. That's the work of the Son in salvation. Now let's keep going. Notice what he says. We have forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. You don't buy forgiveness. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's God's grace. Your sins can be forgiven by the grace of God. God giving us what we don't deserve. Not only is it by grace, notice, according to the riches of of His grace. We have forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. Imagine with me that you are a multi-millionaire. 
You've got $10 million in the bank. You are multi-millionaires. You're with me so far? You like this story, don't you? You are a multi-millionaire. Okay, well, at the end of the service, we're going to take up an offering, and the offering plate comes by you, and as a multi-millionaire, you put a $20 bill in the offering plate. (laughs) Okay, now that's giving out of your riches. Or, as a multi-millionaire with tens of millions of dollars in the bank, you write a check for a million dollars. You put that in the offering plate. Now you're giving according to your riches, not out of your riches, according to your riches. You see the difference? In him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. Keep going. Which he lavished on us. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. The word lavish there means to make something exist in abundance. To shower. It's an overabundance. Get the picture. He saves us by His grace. It's not just the exact right amount of grace. It's not just enough grace to get the job done. The grace that He graces on us so graciously, He he showers us with His grace. And in Him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace, which He, gra- which he graciously graced upon us, that He showers upon us. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, Paul never got used to the fact that God would save him, that Jesus would love him and die for him. Paul had blood on his hands. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. He had a hand in persecuting the church. He had the blood of martyrs on his hands, And yet God saved him. And in Galatians 2.20, we hear him say, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No wonder Paul gets excited. Remember, this is a 202-word doxology. Paul Paul gets carried away (laughs) in rhapsody, just contemplating The mercy of God, the grace of God, the wonder of salvation, the grace of God. Jesus Christ redeems us and he forgives us. Now, let's keep going. He enlightens us. Let's pick it up in verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Let's stop there. In all wisdom and insight. Now, if you remember last week, we saw a prepositional phrase, in love. And we said in love could go with what goes before it. It could go with what goes after it. Paul's carried away. He forgets all about commas and semicolons and hyphens. And he just, he just goes off on a tear. And we're trying to figure out, okay, which way does this go? So we saw that with in love. Same thing here with this prepositional phrase. In all wisdom and insight. There, there's no period, no comma there, no indication. In all wisdom and insight could go with the grace which he lavished on us. And if that's the case, then it means that his, he, he, lavished his, he lavished his grace on us um, as he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's his grace being lavished on us. Or which he lavished on us can go with what comes next. And here's how he revealed the mystery of his will. That is, with all wisdom and insight. Now, there's a lot going on in verses 8 through 11. And I don't want to get too bogged down. I mean, that's a whole sermon there. We're not going to do that this morning. There's a whole lot here. 
But I do want you to notice a few things. He, he revealed to us the mystery of his will. First of all, the word mystery. When we think of mystery, we think of a puzzle to be solved. You know, who done it? Murder mystery. Who's the killer? You know, who done it? This word mystery shows up about 27 times in the New Testament. 20 of those times are in Paul. Six in the letter to the Ephesians. The word mystery here, as Paul uses it, as we see it in the New Testament, it's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not a whodunit. It is, it is a truth that was previously unrevealed by God, but has now been revealed by God to all of his people. So it's a previously unrevealed truth. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the mystery of our resurrection, that we're going to get a new body. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's, that's the motto for our preschool ministry back here. They don't all sleep, but they all get changed. You know, we, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be raised again. And these corruptible, perishable bodies will put on incorruption and they will be made imperishable. They're, we're going to get a new body. That was, it's always been true, but it wasn't a known truth. It, God hadn't revealed it to his people until the New Testament. Now it's a mystery. A previously unrevealed truth that we can celebrate and rejoice in. Here in Ephesians, this mystery is, generally speaking, God's grand plan of redemption. We have the mystery of, of the advent of Christ that God the Son would be incarnate, the Word would become flesh and dwell among us, and that He would die on the cross for our sins, He would be raised again. That's, that's just the mystery of the work of Christ. We have the mystery of the union of Jew and Gentile into one body in Christ. Now, that's not really something we get tore up about, but in the, in the world of the first century, for these Jews... There's really only two kinds of people. There are Jews and Gentiles, and they don't mix. They don't get along together. They don't mix. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. But this is a mystery, heretofore unrevealed. But now we know that God brings Jew and Gentile, and we bring, he brings us all into one body in Christ, the church, the body of Christ, the church. That's a mystery. He's going to talk about the unity, the, the intimacy between Christ and the church, and he compares it to the intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's a mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's in Ephesians 5. Uh, we have the, the mystery, um, just the, the grand plan of redemption. Now notice, this grand plan of redemption, he has revealed to us with all wisdom and insight. So here's how he has revealed it to us. We kind of get this idea in verse 18. For he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of his saints. God reveals this to us in him. It's not a secret knowledge just for a select few who get initiated. No, it's for God's people. God's revealed truth to his people. Now, let's keep going. Like I say, there's a lot here. But look at this mystery. What has he revealed? The mystery of his will. I want you to notice some words. Notice in verse 9, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. The word purpose means to plan before, to formulate a future course of action. Purpose. With a view to an administration. That's an odd word. It's a strange word. It means a, a management of a household. It kind of talks about a steward managing the affairs of a household. 
It is a plan that involves a set of arrangements. That's kind of what a steward does for the household. He, there's, there's a plan involved and some arrangements that are made. In the New Testament, this word usually speaks of God's plan for bringing salvation to mankind through the course of history. So, we have purpose, we have an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, well, we talked about that word last week, something marked out beforehand, a predetermined plan, according to his purpose, that which is planned in advance and intention, who works all things after the counsel, again, a plan, intention, purpose, a series of steps to be carried out, the counsel of his will, that which is purposed, intended, desired. You get a theme here? Plan, 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 plan. Purpose, 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 purpose. Here, here are all those terms for that same idea. God has a plan. God has a purpose that he is unfolding through the ages. This is the mystery of his will, this grand plan of redemption. God has a plan for creation, for humanity, and everything is going according to God's plan. Now, notice, notice that he is the God of history. Notice what he says back in verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. God is in control of the timing. He's in control of history. In Galatians 4.4 it says, In the fullness of time God set forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. In the fullness of time. Remember, God has a plan. And at the exact right time, in God's plan, he sent his Son to be born of a virgin and laid in a manger. In the fullness of time. God's timing, God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, God's going to send his son back. Jesus is coming again at just the right time, in his timing, according to his plan for history. Jesus is coming again. Now, watch what's going to happen. When he comes again, notice in verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The summing up of all things in Christ. The, literally, the uniting of several things under one head. That's what that word means, strange word. The summing up of all things under one head. Here's the short version. God has a plan. He has a purpose. God is unfolding that plan through the ages. And in the fullness of time, according to God's plan, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, everything will be summed up under Jesus Christ. He's going to sum up. He's, it's the climax of history, the summation of the plan. He will destroy his enemies. He will purge sin from the world. And the kingdoms of this world will become his kingdoms. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will reign with a rod of iron and righteousness and peace and justice. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the summing up of all things in Christ. In the fullness of time, God has a plan. You know, somebody will ask, what is this world coming to? Well, you know, it's coming to Jesus. In the fullness of time, according to God's predetermined plan, it's coming to Jesus. The summing up of all things into him. Now, he has revealed this to his people in all wisdom and insight. God has revealed this to, 
to you and to me, to his people, so that we can understand this truth and live accordingly. Lost people don't get this. Unbelievers don't understand this. It's been revealed to us in all wisdom and insight. He reveals it. Now, by the way, for the purpose of the text and the sermon and the outline, I blame this on Jesus. <laughs> but as you read the New Testament, you find out the Father's involved in Revelation and the Spirit's involved in Revelation and the Son is involved in Revelation. But here I put it at the feet of Jesus. But He reveals us. He enlightens us to who He is and what He has done and what He's going to do. I saw a T-shirt one time. It said, Jesus is Lord. And on the back it said, duh. <laughs> Just duh, period, duh. For the unbelieving world, Jesus is Lord makes no sense. I mean, that's just whatever. I mean, just it, it's nonsensical. What do you mean Jesus is Lord? That's, that's just gibberish. What does some guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, how does that help me today? I live in the real world. What does that have to do with me? And to talk about the summing up of all things in Christ and that Jesus is coming again and there's going to be a resurrection of the, of the living and the dead and, and all the rest, that's just, it sound, I mean, they have more faith in zombies and UFOs than that. That's just, that's, you people are weird who believe in that kind of stuff. But to us who know him, he has revealed it in all wisdom and insight. The summing up, the mystery of his will, his plan. We see it. And we know it to be true. Well, let's keep going. So God has revealed it. What I want you to see is that God has a plan and he's going to, he's going to bring it out. That's, what, that's the takeaway. God is unfolding his plan. Now, that would mean a lot to those Ephesians. Remember, they live in a pagan city. There's the temple to Diana right there, this, this one of the ancient wonders. Um, they have the magic. It's a center for magic and demons and spirits and astrology and the stars. And these folks have come out of a culture that says everything in the world out there is in control of their lives, from the stars to the demons to spirits to Diana, whatever else. And what, what, God wants, what Paul wants the Ephesians to know and what God wants you and me to know is that, oh no, he's in control of our lives. He's the sovereign Lord. He's in control. None of that other stuff. All right, let's keep going. So... The Son redeems us, He forgives us, He enlightens us. Now, let's look at the work of the Spirit. Let's keep going. Down in verse 13. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit. So there's the work of the Father, the work of the Son, now the work of the Holy Spirit. One, He seals us. Having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's the spirit that, that was promised in the Old Testament, this era of the new covenant, a covenant of spirit. In the Greco-Roman culture, you probably ought to know this, that a seal marked, it signified ownership, security, and authenticity. If you had a document that was sealed by some official, there'd be a blob of wax on it, and the official would take his signet ring or some kind of seal put it in the wax, and then when you receive that document, you could tell by that seal, this really does come from that official, whoever said it's supposed to be from. It's a sign of authenticity. If the wax has not been broken, it's a sign of security. You know, confidentiality has not been breached. It's been secured this whole time. And then it speaks of ownership. You might put a seal on your material possessions. You might put a seal on your animals, like a brand, 
You might even put a seal on your slaves, signifying ownership. They are yours. You are sealed in Him. Having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. All of that is in view in the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me give you some Bible. In chapter 4, he's going to tell us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That speaks of our security. We are sealed to the end, to the day of redemption. In Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God within us seals us, testifies, verifies our authenticity. You are a child of God. You know him. In 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Again, authenticity, ownership. So the Holy Spirit seals us. Not only does He seal us, notice He assures us. He guarantees us. Having sealed in Him, been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. A pledge. That the word pledge means a down payment, an initial installment, or earnest money. If you've ever bought a house, you understand earnest money. Somebody selling a house, you want to buy their house, so you make a contract. You say, hey, I want to buy this house. So you enter into a contract, and you give the seller some earnest money. You're saying, I have every intention of fulfilling this contract and buying this house. And if for some reason it falls through, and it's my fault, and I don't end up buying this house, you get to keep the earnest money. So let's say you put down $1,000. Here's $1,000, and if I renege on this, if I breach this contract, well, the $1,000 is yours for your time and trouble. But I'm giving this to you as a pledge. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. We're going to do this. That's the pledge. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a down payment, as an installment on what God intends to do with us and for us. In fact, this word, the word for pledge in modern Greek, is the word for an engagement ring. That's a cool picture. What's an engagement ring? It's a promise. It's a down payment. It's a promise that we're going to get married. It's a promise of a future consummation. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. It, he is a pledge on things to come, on our inheritance. One scholar put it this way. He said a better translation might be, who is the initial, that the Holy Spirit is the initial installment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, he sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, that initial down payment. So there's the work of the Father, the work of the Son, work of the Spirit. Now let's talk about the work of the believer. One of the most important questions, maybe the most important question ever asked was this, what must I do to be saved? I can't think of a more important question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved from my sins, forgiven by God, and to go to heaven? What must I do to be saved? And the answer to that is just as important. Now, as we come to Ephesians 1, we get an answer to that question. What must I do? Well, here's what the Father did. Here's what the Son did. Here's what the Spirit did. Now, what do I have to do? What do I have to bring to the table for me to be saved, for me to go to heaven, what do I have to offer? What do I have to do? And you might expect, I bet you have to do some religious stuff. Mm -hmm. If you want to be saved, I bet you have to join a church. You probably have to get baptized. Uh, I bet you have to put some money in the offering plate. You have to help the poor, do some charity, do some good things. I, I, I bet that's what we have to do to be saved. Watch. Look in verse 13. In him you also, 
after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice two things you have to do. One, you have to listen to the message of truth. After listening, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you have to listen to the message of truth. The gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That is the message of truth. In a world of lies and deception, that's the message of truth. It is the gospel of your salvation. It's the source of salvation. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, even to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the power of God unto salvation. The message of truth, the gospel, the message, the gospel of your salvation, you have to listen. You have to hear it. You have to receive it. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I've talked to some people over the years who don't want to hear it. Start to tell them about the gospel, and it's just like, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to hear it. You can hush now. Don't tell me all that stuff. I don't even want to hear it. They reject it. They refuse it. They scoff at it, and they mock at it. You want to be saved? Well, it starts here. You have to listen to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You hear it, and you receive it. And then notice what you do with it. You believe. Having listened to the message of the truth the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. And you know by now that our word believe in our English Bible is a translation of the Greek verb for faith. You faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth, faith on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe, who faith on his name. Jesus said, he that believeth, he believes, he who faiths is not condemned. He that believeth not, who does not faith, is condemned already because he's not believed faith on the name of the only begotten Son of God. What do you have to do to be saved? You have to listen to the gospel and believe. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 16.30, we have that most important question asked, what must I do to be saved? And the all-important answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Believe. You faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus preached, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent means you turn away from. You turn away from this world, this life. You turn away from sin. You turn away. You turn to Jesus Christ. You receive his, his gift of eternal life. You put your faith and trust in him. You believe the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. It takes a lot for somebody to go to heaven. But notice that God did all the work. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God did all the heavy lifting. What do you do? You listen and you respond in faith. You hear it and you believe. That's what you do. It's not joining the church, getting baptized, doing good things, helping people. It is you repent and believe. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you received by faith his gift of eternal life? Are you saved? If not, if you're not sure, today's the day and now's the time. In a moment, we're going to stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus, or I want to be saved, or I need God, however you want to say it.
We'd love to talk with you privately and answer your questions and pray with you if you'd like to. But you can leave here today knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you have redemption through His blood, that you are a child of God, that, that you are saved. Come and say yes to Jesus Christ this morning. If you are saved, marvel at the wonder of salvation. Be like Paul. Don't get used to it. Behold the wonder of His grace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Look at what God did to save you. Praise Him for it. And now tell someone else the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, this is a rich passage. There's just so much here. Lord, like Paul, we stand in wonder. We just marvel at the wonder of salvation and what You what you did and what you do to save us. May we be amazed at your grace. God, I pray for the one who's never been saved, and I pray that you bring them to the cross even now. Help them to see, here and know they need Jesus Christ. They must be born again, that they are by nature children of wrath and destined to a devil's eternity. God, I pray that you just help them to see and know your love and your grace and your Son. May today be that day. Bring them to the cross today. Lord, for those of us who name you as Lord and Savior. I pray that we would join the Apostle Paul in marveling at the wonder of salvation, that we would, too, be caught up and and caught away in praising you for your amazing grace toward us. Lord, we celebrate in the mystery of your will that you have revealed that one day Jesus is coming again to consummate the ages, and even so come, Lord Jesus. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.